Well, do you ever feel uh, like you have arrived as a Christian, that you know what's what, uh, that you consider yourself to be a mature Christian? Well, I did back when I was about 21 years old, and now I realize you might think I don't look much older than 21, but I am just a little bit uh, older than that now. I now realize that I have still much to learn, much needed growth, uh, and again, I've also realized how subtle sin is at times, and yet still how destructive. Well, the book of James uh, sets before us not just a call to maturity, but actually to perfection. Look at verse 4, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. A high bar is set for those who are in Christ. Uh, And James here is actually in step with the Lord Jesus, who in Matthew 5, 48 says to those who are his disciples, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Well, we were introduced to to James last time, a month ago, and we considered James as a sort of doctor recognizing symptoms, making a diagnosis, and prescribing the appropriate medicine. In chapter 1, we're introduced to a whole range of seemingly disconnected symptoms that his readers were displaying, but we considered how the diagnosis is really double-mindedness. Verse 8, which appears again in chapter 4, verse 8, says, purify your hearts, you double-minded. The problem of a divided heart. Let's flesh that out just a little bit. A number of ways where as Christians we are in two places at once, and there's a a tug in different directions. Uh, Paul, uh, if you remember some of his letters at the beginning, the very first verse, sometimes we might skip over, but he writes to, to those who are in Christ and who are in Ephesus, to those who are in Christ and in Philippi, and he does that repeatedly in a sense of being in two places at once. There's also a sense where already we have all the blessings of Christ, Uh, blessings of God in Christ, but not yet does it feel complete because we still live in a fallen world. Let me illustrate uh, that. Uh, I served as assistant minister in uh, Hamilton Road congregation in Bangor. Uh, I imagine there's a few people here have maybe been to Bangor at least on a day trip. Uh, My first uh, arrival in Bangor wasn't just as I became the assistant minister there, but actually uh, some of my favorite uh, holidays when I was young or when we went to Bangor, we went to Bangor for a week a couple of times, who needs to go away to foreign places, you can have a great time when you're young in Bangor, and of course if you're familiar with Bangor, uh, you'll know that down in the seafront, uh, there's a lot of nothing happening at the seafront, but there's a nice marina and there's Picky Pool, and you know what's in Picky Pool, there's these swan boats, and they were there 30 years ago or so when I was uh, going there on holiday, and uh, I remember this one occasion where I have an older brother and myself, uh, we were getting on the swan boats, and um, my younger brother, who's three years younger than me, he must have been about five years old at the time, and uh, he said he was too scared to go in the boat because he, he didn't want to fall into the water. Now, the water's only about that deep below the swan boats, uh, and in a way, he didn't come on. He stood at the side, and my brother, older brother, and I, we got in, pedaled about, uh, and then came over and said, look, come on in. It's fine. You're, you'll be fine. No issue. There's a wee seat here in the back. We'll do all the pedaling. You'll enjoy yourself. But he was, he was not for having it, and he wasn't going to join us in the boat because of his fear. And he said, no, 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 I'm not going to go. I'll just push you out. And he put his hands in the boat, and he started pushing, and you know where this is going. Because <laughs> he put his hands in the boat, and his feet were attached to the land, 
uh, and it only got so far where he was being pulled in uh, two directions uh, and he ended up falling in uh, and as well as uh, the tears running down his cheeks uh, he was soaked uh, he did survive though um, so that was good uh, but it's a, it's a picture of hands grasping something which could be enjoyable uh, it was enjoyable for us but feet planted on the land uh, and as Christians we have our hands grasping eternal joy but our feet are planted in the soil of this fallen world and so we are in danger of being pulled one way and another Sunday we sing uh, we rub shoulders with like-minded people but Monday brings us back into contact with the world maybe even Sunday night maybe there's some here and you're going home to a spouse there's no time for the church no time for the good news of Jesus or some other family member we're brought in back into contact with the world and so the the songs we sing on Sunday uh, the truths we hear they rub up against the way of the think- thinking of the world and so the way of the chameleon calls to us and God through James is calling us not to be chameleons going with the flow trying to fit in for to be such is to have a deadly case of that condition he calls double-mindedness to have a divided heart and that's not just a call for you as an individual it's a call for you as a church family as a congregation of Christ's church Uh, I've entitled this series the undivided church wholehearted living for Christ throughout the New Testament when we see uh, directions for for the church it is it's you but it's always you plural as some people in Northern Ireland say use or usins it's always you plural apart from the letters to Timothy and Titus all the letters they're addressed to the church it's a it's a plural it's a corporate application and so we don't want as a church to be dragged one way or the other uh, and end up looking like the world being guilty of being double-minded and having divided hearts this is the over- overarching theme of, of James's uh, letter all the issues he addresses connect to this in one way or another uh, and James 1 introduces at the beginning of the letter nearly all of what is to come uh, the things listed in these first 18 verses especially uh, they all pop up again elsewhere in the letter and so because of that uh, we aren't going to get into everything in these verses uh, we read there uh, otherwise we'd be here until midnight but also because as i say they'll be addressed uh, later in the letter what we will do is focus on the first issue james presents the issue of trials and we see that in verses two to four as well as in verse 12 and and just on that actually uh, verses five following the verses on trials starts to talk about wisdom and again it's one of those sudden changes where we think well what's wisdom got to do with trials Uh, and yet maybe if we seek to understand uh, the nature of trials and why god has led us through these uh, we lack wisdom on this we can ask for wisdom in the midst of not understanding the present circumstances we find ourselves in but but anyway as i say we're going to focus on verses two to four uh, and then verse 12. we read of trials of testing and of the call to steadfastness And by placing trials in this prominent position up front, James is giving us an insight that the tough times believers were facing in his day was a key background to his writing to them. And if you look back there uh, to verse 1, it tells us uh, he's written this letter to the 12 tribes in the dispersion, uh, those who have been scattered among the nations, Christians who've been evicted from from their homes, 
expelled from Jerusalem, maybe any contact with anyone they knew gone. Effectively, they're refugees who fled their country. Their livelihoods affected. James talks of the poor at different points. He writes to churches where people were struggling with different trials. He writes uh, to them of how to approach these and how to survive as Christians. Well, that was then, and this is now. And what about your circumstances? Maybe you're sitting here today or this evening, and you're thinking, well, I'm not in Ukraine. There's stuff going on in Ukraine. There's war. I'm not in a war zone. Or you're thinking, well, I'm not, a, I'm not a refugee. Maybe for you, life circumstances are actually quite good at the moment. But here's two things to keep in mind. Firstly, no matter how good you've got it right now, there will be some problem waiting for you just around the corner. We can enjoy life. God's given us so many things to enjoy, but our lives are constantly tinged by the realities of living in a fallen world and by the realities of sin in us and also in those around us. And secondly, so much of the Bible is given over to encouraging God's people to stand firm, to hang in there, to endure, to have perseverance in difficulties. We see it across the Psalms, we see it in other parts of the Old Testament, and we can see it across the New Testament. There's almost a sense in which we could say, if you're not facing difficulties, are you being faithful? Although it's not a like-for-like match, and looks like Job tells us that. So in the time that remains, want to look a bit more detail at verses 2 to 4 and this issue of trials uh, and suffering. And I've got three points, uh, but before I give you them, let me say that any attempt to deal completely with the problem of suffering in, one o- in a one-off sermon would fail in its aim, would come across as trite, because Scripture says so much on this, as I've just alluded to, and those who listen as well are listening in the midst of different circumstances I know a few of you here, I don't know all of you, and I don't know what is going on, uh, and maybe most people here don't know what's going on in your life uh, right now, and maybe there is a real difficulty in your circumstances. And so we listen with different things going on in our lives, depending on when we hear a a sermon like this. And there's different levels of understanding, different growth and maturity as a Christian. So what is presented here this evening is not the answer to the problem, but it is an answer a biblical answer from one part of Scripture. And while it's not comprehensive, it is true because it is God's Word for you this evening. Uh, First point then, Christian, know joy through trials. Christian, know joy through trials. First, what do we understand by trials that it mentions there in verse 2? You might think of difficulties, troubles, even suffering What is the nature of the trials James talks of? Well, we've already seen how he's writing to those who've had to flee. Persecution, suffered by Christians then, and of course by many throughout history, and still today, in fact, because of population numbers, probably more even today, persecuted for their faith in Christ. Most here this evening, I would venture, have likely not faced anything much by way of persecution, or even ridicule specifically for being a Christian even if you've been ridiculed for wearing a silly outfit or wearing shorts in the winter or something like that. That's a different matter. However, James is not just confining trials to his immediate reader's experience of persecution. Uh, That is an important distinction to make, but if you look there, what does it say? 
He says, when you meet trials of various kinds. So James is widening the scope to include the many kinds of suffering Christians experience in this fallen world. Sickness, maybe you can say even sickness, your own sickness, some illness you're suffering or someone you're close to. Loneliness. So many people are lonely, feel isolated. Bereavement, disappointment, amongst other things, could all be considered trials. And so notice too, it's not if you meet trials, it says when you meet trials. These are not the sort of meetings uh, you plan on. When you meet trials, I imagine when you have meetings, you, you tend to meet up with people. You either prearrange to meet up with someone or maybe you bump into someone when you're in Balamina, when you're out and about at the end of the day. Uh, if I've been doing something uh, and, and Claire uh, has been out working in the hospital, I'll usually ask, well, did you meet anyone today out in the ordinary? And she'll say, oh, yes, I met so-and-so. You know, I worked with them years ago and I haven't seen them for years. Or she'll ask me, well, did you see anyone? I'll say, well, I was out with so-and-so from the church or... Maybe I've been off with the kids, been down in soft play or something, or bumped into somebody, and we'll say about who we'd meet, who we just happened to meet. Well, when you meet, when you meet, out and about around town, you bump into people, you meet people. Well, we're told here when we go through everyday life, we meet trials, we encounter difficulties. For you, that could be uh, feeling exhausted at the end of a day when you were. Uh, been trying to get stuff done, you haven't had a minute's peace, and the kids have demanded your constant attention. You've been doing it all on a poor night's sleep to start with. Or maybe it's the frustration of trying to fix something around the house and it just won't work. There's all sorts of things we can uh, find as, as trials, some trivial and some significant. I, I describe meeting trials there as like bumping into people. For you, maybe that is one and the same thing. Some people you know, every encounter feels like a trial. For others, it's health or it's wealth or the lack of it. So trials of many kinds that we will meet. Uh, but the last part of this point we haven't considered yet is the joy part. Christian, no joy through trials. Now, I imagine when you think of trials or struggles or, or difficulties, uh, whatever way that you conceive of them in your life, probably joy isn't the first emotion that you feel. And that's it, isn't it? When trials come your way, you tend to stop thinking and start feeling. Joy is maybe the opposite of what you feel. So James sounds not just strange, but unsettling. Even warped to pair joy with trials. But then we need to pay attention to James's accent. And I actually need to see if our definition of joy is the same as his. You see, let me just take a drink of water. We tend to see joy as an emotional buzz, like feeling happy about something, a wedding in the family or a wedding with a friend. I have a, a wedding coming up uh, this uh, Saturday. Uh, these sorts of days, occasions, they're, they're days full of joy, uh, full of happiness, we might say. Or there might be joy, uh, this emotional buzz we feel uh, when a new baby is joined into the family before the sleepless night starts, of course. Uh, you, you get the job, maybe there's that feeling then. Or you get the promotion, there's that feeling then. Or when Man United actually win a game, there's maybe that feeling then. I think they were playing today, I don't actually know what the score was, but uh, those sorts of things. Uh, joy, if we conceive of it like this, is all too infrequent. Most of what we call joy is, is temporary. And it's too connected to our circumstances 
to be real joy. See, James has in mind something deeper than excitement at some good news or because some amazing experience, uh, some amazing experience you have. If our conception of joy is just settled in those circumstantial things, then we're in real danger of chasing a feeling, moving from one thing to the next, hoping that we'll get an emotional high we mistakenly call joy. Well, that is not uh, true joy. Uh, Joy, according to James, is something deep, something lasting, something that stretches into eternity. So it's uh, it's not just about present circumstances. A man is never miserable until he has lost his happiness. Uh, One author has said, our comfort lies to a great extent in the choice of our main happiness. It's what we choose to center uh, our highest affection on. What we choose to center our hope on, our hope of goodness. It's what we choose to center our, our joy on. The choice of our main happiness. Uh, one old uh, commentator uh, called Thomas Manton said this, a Christian is a bird that can sing in winter as well as in spring. Their joy is from the happy consequences of their sufferings. Well, let's think more about the happy consequences of the Christian's sufferings. Christian no joy through trials, and that leads us then to think about Christian no testing through trials. Christian no testing through trials. As a Christian, you've trusted uh, and are trusting in Jesus as your Savior and Lord, and that guarantees you a great future with Him in glory, but all too often, that glorious future, it seems out of sight and out of mind as you make your way through the muck of life. The book of James shows us uh, that having faith does not remove the need for wisdom in daily living. There are similarities between what James is saying and Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. For James readers, there, was, uh, there were conflicts and factions within the church that we'll see in, in later sections. There were those who claimed to be Christians but who bore no fruit. James writes wisdom for the church, living in an up and down world as she waits for Christ's return. And is it any different for us? We are called to be faithful as we wait for Christ's return, as we wait for his promises to be fulfilled. Uh, And as we wait, uh, we know these trials. And, And why is there joy then connected to these trials? And and why is there testing connected to these trials? Well, when we think of, of testing, uh, there's two meanings uh, when it says there about testing in verse 3, being tried and tested. Uh, one is uh, we test something in order to approve of it, and the other way is in order to improve it. Uh, tried and tested, well, it's been done before and it's worked. We've tried this and finally it works. It's ready uh, and it works. Uh, We think of all the vaccines that were created for for COVID. They were trying to get the right one that actually did the job uh, and kept trying to uh, get one that could be approved for use. Testing of faith has the goal in view. It looks forward to the bigger uh, picture. Uh, Testing in mind here is not so much a testing for approval, but in order to improve. Because remember what I said uh, last time as we flick forward to Uh, chapter 2, verse 1, we're told uh, it's uh, written to those who hold 
the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. They are already Christians. And so this testing is to improve, is to, is to develop them, to improve something uh, that is there. Uh, another illustration from a movie that I watched when I was uh, young. Maybe you remember this. I think they've done a remake of it in recent years. I don't think I've seen it. Um, but just a clip of it, uh, the movie called The Karate Kid. You've seen it? One or two nods here from uh, some. Yes, The Karate Kid. So this little boy, Daniel, uh, wants to be good at karate. Uh, so these bigger boys. He wants to be good at uh, playing karate with them. Uh, and he goes to this supposed karate master, Mr. Miyagi, and he says, look, teach me how to fight. Teach me how to do all these karate moves. And uh, instead, it seems, he's given a paintbrush and he's told he needs to paint the fence up and down, up and down, all day long. And he thinks he's finished before looking around the corner and then there's all these other fences and he keeps going up and down. And then after he's done that, he has to polish the car. And it's polish, polish, polish. Uh, and of course, just reading this back into to that story, this would have been a trial for him painting all day long. He's thinking, why am I having to paint? I want to do karate, and all I'm doing is painting up and down. All I'm doing is, is polishing a car. And he got very frustrated at the end of this. Uh, and eventually then, he sort of let this frustration out with Mr. Miyagi, uh, but then Mr. Miyagi went to hit him, uh, and he was able to block. And actually, unbeknown to him at the time, this, all this extra work was to strengthen his muscles so that he'd be able to uh, do his karate moves with, with strength rather than with weakness. He didn't understand it at the time, and yet this was a way he was being developed. And this is what it's like with God. We go through trials of all sorts, and it's God, one of God's ways to fashion us, to test us in order to improve us as his people. And we don't understand that when we're in the midst of it. And it is hard when we're in the midst of it. And yet, we have to trust from passages like this, hearing sermons like this, that when we then end up in the thick of it, whether it's down the line or whether you're in it right now, that God has some purpose in this uh, to, to improve us uh, and to show forth what we truly are as his people. So James puts us under the microscope. Uh, he puts us under the microscope uh, and he tells us of suffering, uh, a suffering which will show the genuineness of our faith and which will stand out in a dark and sad world. So testing uh, through uh, trials, but also perfection uh, through trials. Perfection through trials. James, uh, as he says there in verse 4, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. You see, with this idea of testing and, and perfection, we're, we're being improved all the time. This is God's way to shape and fashion us. Now, normally as a Christian, you might think the way you want to grow is you're going to uh, read your Bible at home, uh, you're going to pray every day, you're going to do that, and you'll grow as a Christian. And of course, you will benefit so much from doing that. Or you might think, well, I'm here at church this evening, I was here this morning, and maybe you come to the midweek, maybe you come to the prayer meetings, maybe you're active in service, and all those things are good but they're only part of the equation for how God molds and shapes his people. One of the ways he does that is through trials and through suffering. It's not what we would choose, and yet it's what God is using. And if it, our faith is genuine, it will stand up under pressure. Genuine faith is persevering faith. 
And that means adversity of some sort uh, will come our way. And, and actually, Peter talks in a similar way of being tested in a refiner's fire. If you think of metal or jewels, the, the flames and the heat burn away the dross, the impurities that cling to the item, so that after the fire, when all is cool, whatever has passed through the flames is seen to be pure, perfect. And that's similar to what we see here in chapter 1, verse 4. Maybe there's no one here who's got a furnace at home who's getting purified gold or purified silver, but maybe to use another uh, example that uh, maybe there's probably more common here uh, is gardening, uh, pruning. Uh, to the uninformed would look like you're cutting away a good plant, but the keen gardener knows that you, you have pruned and cut, and I'm not a keen gardener, so I'm sure there's one or two uh, here be much better. Um, there's better fruit. We have apple trees in, in our house uh, in Bangor, uh, and there is fruit there, but they need to be pruned in a proper way so that each year there's more and more fruit. And of course, that's a biblical that image as well. We see it in John chapter 15. Imagine you're part of that vine, part of that plant. Well, pruning is hard because things are being cut off. You're thinking, why is that being cut off? And yet God is wanting to make us even more fruitful. God is, want to shaping, God is wanting to shape us uh, even more. Uh, Augustine, one of the great church fathers uh, in the early centuries, said this about God's people. He said they were bound, butchered, racked, stoned, burned, but still they were multiplied. The church was founded in blood, and it thrives best when it is moistened with blood, founded in the blood of Christ, and moistened or watered, as it were, with the blood of the martyrs. We go through all sorts of, of suffering, all sorts of problems in this life. And they can be hard. And yet, if we think of the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross, and we are wondering in the midst of our suffering, why is God letting this happen to me at this time? Surely this isn't God's will for me. And yet, if we think about it, Jesus was right at the center of where God wanted him to be, on the cross. And that shows us that it is possible to be exactly where God has placed us and to be doing exactly what God has asked us to do, and yet to be in agony. Because God is set, has set joy before us, the joy of glory in Christ, in heaven, but in the meantime, there's that testing that produces steadfastness uh, that is aimed towards perfection. And I want to uh, come to a close on this. Uh, but I'll repeat the line, but then I'll tell you some words from a hymn, which I think uh, will bring this home. A man is never miserable until he has lost his happiness. Our comfort lies to a great extent in happiness. What are you choosing this evening to take your joy in? Is it in temporary, passing treasures, temporary, fading experiences, or is your joy centered deep in the Lord Jesus Christ, that your life is so tied up with him, so bound up with him, that you have such peace and grace and mercy in your life, that even when you're in the midst of adversity, in the midst of trial and struggle, strangely, able to smile. There might be tears, but there's still joy in your heart because the choice of your main happiness is the Lord Jesus Christ. And we recognize then 
that he uses these things to help us grow. Uh, the hymn I mentioned there is from John Newton, uh, the uh, author of Amazing Grace. Uh, and one hymn he wrote uh, says this. He says, I asked the Lord that I might grow in faith and love and every grace, might more of his salvation know and seek more earnestly his face. Twas he who taught me thus to pray, and he, I trust, has answered prayer, but it has been in such a way as almost drove me to despair. I hoped that in some favored hour, at once he'd answer my request, and by his love's constraining power, subdue my sins and give me rest. Instead of this, he made me feel the hidden evils of my heart, and let the angry powers of hell assault my soul in every part. Yea, more with his own hand, he seemed intent to aggravate my woe, crossed all the fair designs I schemed, blasted my gourds, whatever that means, and laid me low. Lord, why is this? I trembling cried. Wilt thou pursue thy worm to death? And here's the answer. Tis in this way, the Lord replied, I answer prayer for grace and faith. These inward trials I employ from self and pride to set thee free and break thy schemes of earthly joy that thou mayst find thy all in me. Amen, and let's pray.